are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com. Second, three to eleven. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. This is the word of the Lord. So painting a picture of what life in relationship with God looks like, one of the images Jesus uses is this. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was chatting with a friend of mine who pastors another church here in Brooklyn And he told me the story about something that recently happened in his church on a Sunday. He was preaching, and he was getting to the good part. This is something you should know, that even the most boring sermon you've ever heard, the preacher believes there's a good part (laughs) that it's all building up to. So he's getting to the good part, and, and he's there. And right when he gets there, this woman very loudly throws the door of the church open and staggers from the back of the room all the way to the front. Visibly drunk, she sits down on the front row, vomit dried onto her shirt. He said he could smell her from the stage where he was teaching. But this is the good part. So he just powers through. And then she lays her head back on the pew at the front of the church and starts snoring loudly, loud enough for the whole front of the room to hear and begin to take notice. And as that was happening, this one woman in his church named Mercedes stood up from wherever she was sitting somewhere near the back and walked all the way to the front, sat down next to this woman mid-sermon, put her arm around her, kissed her on the shoulder, and started rubbing her back, just sitting there next to her while she snored. That's happening on the front row. So everyone else in the church has a perfect view of this. And my friend said, I I almost stopped preaching because I was just watching tears well up in the eyes of everyone else in the congregation, but it had nothing to do with what I was saying and had everything to do with what they were witnessing. No one will remember the words I spoke that morning. (laughs) 
everything I prepared over three cups of coffee earlier that week, no one will remember it because that, Mercedes rubbing that woman's back on the front row while she slept it off, that was the good part. That was the sermon for that day. And that woman was probably too drunk to remember that gesture. Who knows if, if she was even so intoxicated that she doesn't know she was stumbling into a church building, but Mercedes saw a stranger, and so she welcomed her in. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Now, if that's a distant idea that you've never actually experienced, then you need to know this, that this is the kind of God we're dealing with, one who welcomes strangers. So if you feel like a stranger to God, or like God may be a stranger to you, you are in the perfect starting place. But many of you know this God, not as a comforting idea, but as a personal reality. You were a stranger once and felt the welcome of the Father. And according to the letter of 1 John, the evidence that God has welcomed you is that you go on welcoming strangers yourself. You cannot separate loving God from loving people. But plenty have tried. There's this famous scene recorded in three of the Gospels. I'll give you Matthew's version. It goes like this. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with a question. Hold on, one of who? One of the Pharisees. And look, the Pharisees get a really bad rap in Christian circles these days because they found themselves on the wrong side of Jesus teaching again and again and again. But they lived a really challenging lifestyle. The Pharisees were a guild of priests that memorized the law and the prophets. That two-thirds of the Bible we call the Old Testament, memorized. They fasted weekly. When was the last time you went to a 24-hour period without food just to say, God, your kingdom is what I crave more than anything else? If you asked that question to a Pharisee, they'd say, oh, I think, oh, Tuesday. It was Tuesday. And they added restrictions to the 613 commands that there exist in the law. 613 commands was not enough for them to order their lives by. They lived a challenging lifestyle. So that kind of priest asked Jesus a question. Teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Great answer. Actually, it was the answer the priest was hoping to hear because Jesus is quoting a portion of the Old Testament this guy's got memorized. He's reciting the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is the supreme verse of Judaism. It is the John 3.16 of the Hebrew people. The Jewish people in the, in the first century, and many still today, stopped several times throughout the day to pray this verse. Great answer. Except... Jesus wasn't done talking. And a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus just added on to the Shema. He took the prayer of the Hebrew people and said, you know, it's missing something. And he's talking to a priest. He's talking to someone who lived a dedicated life to God. Yes, but he's also talking to a priest who believed that physical contact with the sick made him spiritually unclean who shut people out of the temple based on race, class, and gender, who restricted his dinner company to those who agreed with his moral code. To that priest, Jesus says, your prayer is incomplete. 
You cannot separate loving God from loving people. Your love for other people is the evidence that the love of God is in you. You cannot separate loving God from loving people. But we kept on trying. So John wrote this letter to a church at the height of Stoic Greek philosophy. It was the worldview in the Greco-Roman world. Thinkers like Pythagoras and Plato and Socrates had popularized this idea of spiritual enlightenment, which essentially means reflection, study, meditation, and then one day, Eureka, I have ascended to a state of spiritual enlightenment through my intellect. Now, the convenient thing about any kind of enlightenment spirituality is this. It's purely internal. It, it is all inner peace with no demand on outer life. And that bit of stoicism started seeping into the church. And so John writes to them and says, no, 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 no. Knowledge is not purely intellectual. Knowledge is experiential. God is known by relational experience, not intellectual enlightenment. He's met and conversed with and alive and relational. His love is real and it's tangible. The spiritually enlightened are the ones outing themselves by welcoming in the strangers. There's a trail of evidence behind everyone who knows God, love for others. You cannot separate loving God from loving people. But that's never stopped us from trying. Just take an honest inventory of your last week. Just go back in your imagination to the activity of the last seven days. Remember your working hours. Remember your morning commutes. The way that you spent your evenings, your downtime, your social plans, your commitments and your obligations, how much of your time is spent completely on others with no benefit to yourself? Because a lot of the things we objectively do for others in a roundabout way are about us, right? So how much of your time do you spend sacrificially loving other people? And I don't mean that as an accusation. The only reason I bring that up is because C.S. Lewis describes hell as an endless spiral into the self. Self-centeredness is the only prison that we lock from the inside. We spiral further and further into the cell that we are building by our insistence on putting me at the center until our lives are full of exactly what we've chosen. And we're unhappy, restless, and forever convincing ourselves of some future point when we will be content. The summer vacation, the long weekend, when that friend comes in town, when the job change happens, the new apartment, the change of season, there's always some point out there in the future when my soul will feel at rest. Which one is more typical or, or is more descriptive of your typical week? A life poured out in love for others or a spiral into the self? To put it in Jesus language, are you anxiously saving your life or joyfully losing it? Because you cannot separate loving God from loving people. See, in a word, I'm talking to you about hospitality. That's it. 
hospitality. But in a few more words, I'm talking to you about this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Have come to know is a very intentional phrase because in ancient Greek, it refers to a definitive event in the past that has ongoing implications on the present. So we know God. I can trace that to a moment or a period of my life or a series of experiences in the past, but I go on knowing God in the present. There's a constant outworking of that event even today. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Now for John, the truth is not a claim or a teaching or something to study, it's a person. John repeatedly uses the truth to refer to Jesus, who he calls the way, the truth, and the life. So if you say you know him but don't live like him, it's not just that you've missed the point, it's that there is a serious disconnection between your life and God's life, and you might not be aware of it. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. Now, made complete, this can also be translated as finished or fulfilled. So as you live as I'm inviting you to live, the love of God grows and expands within you. As you love other people, God's love finishes the work it started in you when he welcomed you as a stranger. The way in is the way on. Giving away the love that you received is the way to continue receiving more and more of that same love. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So there's evidence that comes along with people who know God. Here it is. We live like Jesus. Which begs the obvious question, how did Jesus live? So let's just go from John's letter back to John's gospel. John's biography of the life of Jesus is unique because he spends nearly half of it on Jesus' last 24 hours. And on his final night, we see Jesus very clearly emphasizing two things. First, Jesus is obsessively talking about the Holy Spirit. When the advocate comes, when the advocate comes, when the advocate comes, I'm going away, but it's going to get better. The power that's in me, I'm going to put within you. Remember that? I mean, we spent a couple months on it, podcasted, if you've forgotten already. <laughs> So he's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, but secondly, he's talking about that while doing ordinary acts of hospitality. Jesus is preparing a meal, he's setting a table, he's serving food to his guests. His hands are dirty with common service to common people. He's on his hands and knees, crawling around the table, washing the feet of everyone that he's just served a meal to. Here's a summary of Jesus' life. The power of the Holy Spirit expressed through ordinary hospitality. That's how Jesus lived, the power of the Holy Spirit expressed through ordinary hospitality. And just in case you're wondering if this is just the Apostle John's pet subject, let me just show you one more. Let's go to Luke's Gospel. Two themes jump out in Luke's Gospel. Number one, the power of the Holy Spirit. So the biblical author Mark mentions the Holy Spirit four times. Matthew mentions the Holy Spirit five times. Luke makes 53 distinct references to the Holy Spirit. This is a major theme, but there's a second one, ordinary hospitality. Because Luke records occasions of Jesus eating with strangers and outsiders more than any other gospel writer does. Most scholars believe Jesus at a meal with, with people that are strangers to him is the organizing theme of the entire book of Luke. 
According to Luke, here's a summary of Jesus' life. The power of the Holy Spirit expressed through ordinary hospitality. So when I say hospitality, I'm talking about the ancient definition, not the modern one. Because most modern people, when we say hospitality, we think like, oh yeah, having my friends over for dinner. And that's not hospitality, that's having your friends over for dinner. <laughs> hospitality is two ancient Greek words put together, philo and xenos. Philo meaning love, xenos meaning stranger. Hospitality means the love of strangers. That's the literal construction of the term. And hospitality is the strategy for kingdom expansion. Jesus never launched a website. He did not have a marketing team. He didn't have an Instagram account or even a podcast for his teaching. But here's what he lived. Welcome the ones who think they don't belong. Treat those that are told they're last in the world like they're first in my world. Make strangers and foreigners the honored guests every time you get together. Share meals with one another. Learn to laugh hysterically in each other's presence and also confess and forgive when you have done wrong. Speak truth into one another. Sacrifice yourself to love the other and whatever happens, however bumpy the ride gets, however painful it gets, do not give up. Don't give up on one another because I will never give up on you so you don't either. That's it. That's how the kingdom comes. That is the strategy for kingdom expansion. That's the strategy for getting heaven down to earth. The power of God filling ordinary people like us to do what? To live ordinary hospitality toward one another. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So according to the apostle John, Knowing the love of God feels less like studying a book in a library or listening to a podcast from your favorite preacher and more like putting your arm around an intoxicated woman on the front row and rubbing her back while she sleeps it off. That's what the love of God feels like when it's alive in you. Because you cannot separate loving God from loving people. Now there's two groups of people that are singled out in this letter that we are meant to express that love to, strangers and siblings. So first, we're called to love the stranger. I remember once uh, standing on the sidewalk just outside this AA meeting near Gramercy Park. A friend of mine was on a really courageous journey towards sobriety, invited me to go along with him. I wanted to support him, so I'm, I'm standing there outside this meeting that's just ended. And I see this guy just walk out of the meeting, and then I see this other guy walk and, and kind of like clearly hurrying to catch up to him, and he catches him right in front of me. So I'm standing there on the sidewalk, waiting for my buddy to come out, trying to pretend that I'm not listening to every word these two guys are talking about. And he goes something like this, hey man, is it, I've not seen you before, is this your first time here? Yeah, but I'm, I'm not really sure if this is my thing. Okay, yeah, no problem. What brought you here tonight? Well, I got a DUI and my lawyer made me promise I'd come to at least one of these things, but I really don't think I've got a problem and I'm much more worried about not losing my job than I am about counting days. Totally get it. Where are you going? Back to Brooklyn. Are you in a hurry? Because me and some guys, we go to this barbecue place down the street for dinner every week after this meeting, and I would love to treat you to dinner if you're up for coming with us. 
And then they turn and they start walking the other way from where he was walking. And the older guy is just asking this young guy questions and really intently listening to him. And I've never forgotten that small act because I've asked myself so many times since then, why is the recovery community so inclusive and the Christian community so exclusive? Because that's a pattern. So what is the difference? And I think it's this. I, I was a stranger once. In the church, we tend to forget that. In recovery, people never do. See, the 12-step community is so aware of the series of events that brought them into the room to begin with that they have such deep empathy for the series of events that brings everyone else into the room. They know exactly how bad it had to get, exactly how many deals that person must have made to themselves and then broken, exactly how many regrets they drag heavily into their first meeting, how fresh that most recent wound must be, and how much courage it took just to occupy a metal folding chair on the back row. And so the guy with the decade of sobriety under his belt has never forgotten what it felt like to sit in that chair because he was a stranger once too. And so then he tries to like run after the newcomer in a non-creepy sort of casual but not totally casual way and throw out every sense of convenience and comfort that he might claim for himself because there's nothing more important than loving that person because he cannot separate the love he's received from the love that he's called to give. I was a stranger once. And people come to the church exactly like they go to recovery meetings. I mean, it takes so much courage to enter this room and anonymously occupy a seat. Every single week when we gather, there's at least a few people just anxiously tapping their foot, just thinking, just let it in, just let it in, just let it in, so I can say I did it, so I can feel like I just, I just got to get in and out of here. But most of us, somewhere along the way, we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that we were strangers once too. We were strangers to God, convinced that we didn't belong and then he welcomed us in. How differently might you live if you never forgot that? If that lived forever right at the front of your consciousness? See, the strategy for expanding the kingdom of God has always been ordinary hospitality. Do you want to live like Jesus? You don't have to think strategically or be comfortable public speaking or play an instrument. Just love the stranger. Just jog down the sidewalk in a non-creepy way to catch that person so that she knows that she didn't come in and out of here totally unnoticed, that she's seen, she's valued, she belongs. That's it. And I think it's interesting that if you read the biblical qualifications for pastors and elders in the church, both in in 1 Timothy and in Titus, hospitality makes the list of essentials. I mean, just think of all the leadership scandals that we've watched in the Christian church in the last couple of decades, in, in the evangelical church and the Catholic church. We've tragically seen leader after leader after leader step down for everything imaginable except a lack of hospitality. I've never heard, oh, did you hear? Yeah, he had to step down. It turns out he was up there week after week after week talking about Jesus and then not living exponentially compassionate toward the stranger. It's never that. It's never a lack of hospitality, so maybe we don't take hospitality as seriously as Jesus did. Maybe we love his kingdom, but we've got better plans for its expansion than the one that he gave.
Hebrews chapter 13, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. We've got a single mom's ministry in this church. Have you ever tried to live a full day in New York City, rush home on time to then take care of your kids and put dinner on the table for them? It's nearly impossible. So what if you approached Jasmine and you just said, can, you, can I just get the contact info for one of these moms that comes to the group? And then you contact them and just said, hey, I'll take Tuesdays. I can be at your home at 6 p.m. every Tuesday with a couple pizzas because everyone who's ever lived enjoys pizza. And I can bring that in just to take one thing off your plate. Because I was a stranger once, and he welcomed me. We are the host church for uh, an organization called the New Sanctuary Coalition, which pairs legal U.S. citizens with undocumented immigrants just so they have someone to sit with them in court and help them navigate the system. Have you ever been to court, even traffic court in New York? It is so confusing. Now, I want you to imagine fleeing a country for fear of your life, ending up in this one, and the entire fate of your future resting on understanding a system that is nearly impossible to navigate, and you barely speak the language. So what if you decided, you know what, I'll go get trained and become a refugee escort, and I'll deal with the unpredictable court schedule, and I'll use all of my sick days from work to sit in a fluorescent room where everything moves too slow because I was a stranger once, and he welcomed me. Or what if you just decided, I'm going to re-budget lunch for two every single Sunday. And every time you sat in this room, you were just on the lookout for that person who can barely sit through this thing because they've drug a story through the door that took every ounce of courage they've got just to get in here. And so instead of brunch with your comfortable click, you had brunch with a stranger Sunday after Sunday after Sunday just to say, with your listening presence, I see you, you matter and you belong. Who would do that? Only someone who's never forgotten I was a stranger once, and he welcomed me. In Matthew 25, Jesus said the stranger is so valuable that God's presence is hidden away in them. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you and do any of those things? Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And the reverse is also true. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Hebrews 13, if you show hospitality, you might accidentally show hospitality to angels without knowing it. And then, incredible. But the practical application of this is in the very next verse. So, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering how profoundly does the stranger matter to Jesus? How profoundly does the stranger matter to you? So I'm standing on the sidewalk outside this AA meeting watching these two guys walk off to dinner 
And I don't know how that particular story ended, but I can promise you this, that if you go out of your way to show hospitality to others, you will have to develop a high tolerance for disappointment. Because love is costly and rarely results in much return. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Translation, love is not a savvy investment. It's giving some of yourself away with no guarantee you'll get anything back. Hospitality is not an inspired moment of compassion and affection for the stranger because there's no stamina there. Hospitality is love for the stranger, and love always comes with a high tolerance for disappointment. The only motivation that sustains this kind of life over any period of time is this, I was a stranger once too. But you know what happens to people who say yes to the terribly uncomfortable, typically underwhelming prospect of hospitality is the love of God is made complete in them. It grows and grows and grows and they experience more and more of what brought them in at first. Love the stranger, yes. And then John goes on to write, love your siblings, your brothers and sisters. And I'll try to move through this quickly because my gosh, it's hot in here. I'm sweating. I might need a change of clothes if we're going to finish this sermon. Okay. Love the stranger. Secondly, love your siblings, your brothers and sisters, meaning those within our community, literally meaning the people sitting around you right now. So back to the letter. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Now the English translation kind of disguises it, but there's a sharp turn in the letter at this point because John slips into the first person. He's done with the explanation. He's been teaching up to this point. Now he's talking directly to people he actually knows. And so he uses this term that he repeatedly uses in the letter, beloved, which is a great name for a teaching series. Beloved. In other words, he's saying, I'm not writing you distant theory anymore. I'm done with the teaching portion. Beloved, look at me. Beloved, I'm giving you a new command. Love one another. A new command. Where did he get that? Well, again, just to jump back to John's gospel, John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus is speaking here. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. John is ripping off Jesus' material. And this has been a whole theme of Jesus' life. There are 59 different commands about how we are to treat one another in the Gospels. 59 different times Jesus says, love one another, and that looks like this. And then in the climactic moment, on the final night of his life, Jesus puts all the emphasis here. A new command I give you, love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Hospitality toward each other is the way the kingdom grows. Hospitality is the strategy. And so the Apostle John then writes to the church and continues from this point, anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Now do not miss this part because it runs counterintuitive to the way almost everyone thinks about spiritual maturity today. The scripture ties spiritual fruit and spiritual maturity to love for one another. So how important is it really 
for me to sacrificially love my brothers and sisters? I mean, does spending time with the annoying and overbearing people in this church actually matter? Is being disappointed and hurt and then sticking around a virtue, or is it just a preference? The biblical teaching is this, that your spiritual maturity and our spiritual fruitfulness has a ceiling, and that ceiling is our love for one another. See, people, particularly men, to be honest, in this church, come to me all the time, and they want to know, how do I overcome this pornography habit or this overconsumption or my promiscuity or my cycles of this particular train of thought? How do I overcome this or that? And here's the response that you never think you're going to get. If you have an area of habitual sin that you cannot seem to overcome, turn your attention to tangibly, sacrificially loving the other people in your community. Because patterns of sin feast on a spiral into the self, and they starve on joyfully giving my life away to other people. Loving others is the pathway to overcoming. But it's more than that. It's also the ceiling to our fruitfulness. I want to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, I want to see the lost found and the sick healed and the orphan find a home. I want to see Brooklyn fall in love with Jesus and community groups of web developers and grandmothers and prostitutes that all pray together and the church functionally eliminate the foster care wait list in the city. Don't you? So how do we become that kind of community? How does that go from something that we say as a mantra in a room like this to something that's actually true of us? You love one another. You share meals. You listen to each other. You ask good, thoughtful questions and then patiently, attentively listen. You bear each other's burdens. You feel the suffering, both big and small, that others within our community feel. You celebrate. We become known for the best parties because we cheer on the good things within each other. We bear with. We forgive each other. Even for the things that the offender doesn't know they're doing, we forgive each other. We make room for each other's weaknesses and faults. We include. We discomfort ourselves to expand our friend group to include others. We encourage. We speak words of truth into each other's hearts. We believe in each other. We see the God-given image hidden away in every last one, and we make it our mission to pull it out of that person to the surface. Power always serves love, never the other way around. If it's okay with you, I'm just going to repeat myself here for a couple of minutes. Power always serves love, never the other way around. Why did the early church experience so much power? Because they gave so much love. They never imitated the miracles of Jesus without equally imitating the selfless love of Jesus. They moved toward the mess in one another. They learned to forgive and to ask for forgiveness. They saw the worst in each other and kept on choosing each other. They were disappointed by one another, but they had a high tolerance for that sort of thing. Power always serves love, never the other way around. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7 to the people that spoke prophecies and worked miracles in his name but did not know him? I never knew you. You had power, but it was divorced from love. I never knew you. So here is the pathway to spiritual breakthrough. You simply, humbly, intentionally love one another because power serves love. This community is primed for an outpouring of the power of God. And the dam holding it back is that we have a low stamina for loving each other. As a pastor here, the most frequent critique I hear of this church goes something like this. I love this church. 
I love the Sundays, I love the culture, I love the sense of expectation and openness to God, but I just cannot break into the community. And it seems like some people have, like it seems like a lot of people have found that sense of community here, but it's like they're content with what they've got and they aren't interested in sharing it any place beyond that. And that breaks my heart because our love for one another is the ceiling to our fruitfulness and the ceiling to our maturity. But I also do see it breaking through in glimpses. A few weeks ago, we celebrated the baptism of Joshua Romero. And after it, he stood right here at the front of the room while we sang a few songs, and there was a line of people. This was at 6 p.m. You gotta come at night if you want the good stuff. I'm just saying, there's a line of people that went up the middle aisle all the way past the back row. A line of people that were strangers to him or just acquaintances to him, waiting to greet him, to embrace him as a brother, to speak words of identity directly into his ear. We had to extend the music just so everyone could spend time loving him. And I sat right there on the front row next to Matt, and I looked over at him, and we were both just weeping, ugly crying, tears down our cheeks. And, and I just said, man, this is a culture-shaping moment for our community. This is the thing holding back everything God wants to give us, and I can see it breaking in. So what if you began to practice love for one another as a spiritual discipline? Like what if you blocked off an evening, a weekly evening, or bi-weekly, or just monthly for a dinner? And as an intentional spiritual discipline, you invited someone else from this community over for dinner, you asked them really good, thoughtful questions, and then you just listened. Because good, thoughtful questions with present listening is the conditions by which the presence of God often invades. My wife, Kirsten, is incredible at this. She is the best question asker I know, and I've sat at so many dinner tables with her that became places of encounter with Jesus because she was present with someone else. So as you're listening, just be prayerfully asking, Jesus, are you inviting me to love like you love? How are you inviting me to love like you love? And then speak out a word of encouragement or empathize with something difficult or laugh until you cry or celebrate someone else's blessing. Here's another idea. What if as a discipline, you decided I actually need to practice ordinary hospitality? And here's what I mean by ordinary. That means you don't need an immaculate home and a four course meal with a cheese tasting in order to love somebody else. You know that fight that happens five minutes before the company comes over for dinner? You've gotta eliminate that thing because that is the thing holding some of you back from loving one another. You've got to eliminate that. So here's ordinary hospitality. It's this. You know all those fancy taco spots in Williamsburg? Basically, all of them sell bean and rice burritos for about $2 a pop. So as a discipline, just decide once a week, I'm going to pick up some bean and rice burritos on my way home from work, and I'm going to sit on the floor of my messy home without cleaning up at all with other people that I'm totally present and listening to. Ordinary hospitality. One more, what if as a committed spiritual discipline you just started bringing a word of encouragement? Because Paul writes to the New Testament church and he says when you gather, everyone should bring a prophecy or a praise or a teaching or an encouragement. And so what if every time you gathered with people from this church, whether it was in a happy hour on the Staten Island Ferry or Sunday morning at the church service, you decided I'm gonna spend my commute there praying for the people that I know will be there. I'm gonna ask God for a word of encouragement and then when I arrive, I'm gonna say it directly to someone's face. Encouragement is so easy for us to overlook, but it is so powerful. 
I mean, the words that shape us are the ones spoken directly into us by someone that knows us and loves us. Those are the words that really shape us. So let me just close where we started. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And as I learned to give away the love I received to strangers and to siblings, that love wells up in me to completion. I'm not inviting you to try harder or to do better. I'm inviting you to experience more of the love you said yes to at first. Because at a certain point in the spiritual life, God's love is most profoundly received by giving it away. So here's the question you have to ask yourself. What has God given me? What has God given me? A home or a family or a friend group or a community or a bit of expendable income. What has God given me? Because listen, it's not for you. It's for others. The way God's love is made complete in you is by giving away to others what he's given to you. You cannot separate the love of God from the love of people. So why don't we stand together and we're going to respond. Let's just create a little bit of space um, to listen to God. Just invite you to take on a posture of prayer. Around here, we find it helpful just to put our hands out in front of us as a way of saying, I'm empty-handed, but I'm also here to receive. But closing our eyes is a way of turning our attention to God. Whatever's an honest posture of prayer for you, just get there. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, power of God, into the ordinariness of our lives. Come and speak to us intimately and personally. Come and finish the love that you started in us. Man, I, I had this really neat and tidy little ending but I think I'm just meant to invite a couple groups of people to respond to God. I think God's coming after a couple groups of people today. First, I think that, I think the Father wants to welcome the stranger today. And so if you're in this room and you feel like an outsider, because you carry around with you a secret addiction, because at home you've got a half-finished suicide note, because an authority figure from your past made you have this image of God that, that feels unwelcoming to you, or for whatever reason, this place feels closed off and you're on the outside of it. Please hear this from the Father. You belong here. You belong here, and we, in our feeble, half-hearted effort, we want to welcome you. If you're a stranger in this room, you belong here. And then 
the other thing I just want to ask for is for tears for the proud. But there's others in here that are comfortable here, but it's not because of love, whether the love of God or the love of another, it's because of familiarity. You're comfortable here because you're used to this. You've got a static way of doing this. And so I just want to pray, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would come right now and you would break the hearts of the proud again. That you would give the gift of tears streaming down the faces of those who have gotten used to this place and that are kept from love because of familiarity. God, would you give tears of longing for more of the Father's love? Would you give tears of compassion for strangers and siblings? Would you give tears of hope for more than what I've experienced so far? into this room today feeling like a stranger, please don't leave this room without knowing that you belong. If you walked into this room today proud, stuck in familiarity, please don't leave this room without a fresh breaking of your heart.